If you really want to level up in product, deeply understand go-to-market. Go spend some time working with sales and marketing teams. Understand how your organization delivers products end-to-end. Welcome to Go to Market, a series of discussions with product managers focused on core product skills, career management, and the experiences that have made them successful at companies big and small. I'm Mark, a PM at Google. And I'm Stuart, a PM at Benchling. We started this podcast to learn from people smarter than us, and now we're sharing the insights that we've gathered from talking to other PMs. Today's guest is Vivek Saraswat. He's been a product manager at a number of great companies, including VMware, AWS, and Docker. We met working at Docker several years ago when he was the product manager for Docker's enterprise product. Vivek's story is unique because he actually left the world of product for venture capital and returned again several years later as the VP of product for Vectorized. This gives him some unique perspectives, and so we're lucky to have him on the show. Welcome, Vivek. Thank you, Mark and Stuart, for having me today. Uh, So my name is Vivek Saraswat. I am currently the uh, vice president product for Vectorize, which is a startup building Red Panda, a source available Kafka API compatible next generation streaming data platform. Great to have you on the show, Vivek. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in product management. What drew you to PM? Yeah, so, you know, I actually started my career not in software engineering, but in hardware engineering. I studied material science and I helped build the physical things, things that other people used to build things. I built semiconductors for chips and solar power, uh, solar panels for solar power. And, you know, I, I stumbled into product management in some ways. Uh, I wish I'd heard about it when, when I was younger. I really was always attracted to the business side of things. And I found product management compelling because it really allows you to set the, ne- the nexus of business and technical, as well as working really closely with users and customers. And I started at AWS working on Elastic Block Store snapshots. So that was really moving just from physical infrastructure to digital infrastructure, which was a very natural transition in many ways, going to you know, what was then cloud computing, what's now called cloud infrastructure. Vivek, you and I actually met sometime after your AWS when we both worked at Docker. You were somewhat of a product management mentor to me earlier in my career. What were some things that you learned working at a fast-paced startup like Docker, which was certainly an exciting yet challenging place to work? Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of ups and downs. And and I think let's separate that into two categories. There's being a product manager at a startup, and then there's you know being a product manager at Docker. And so for context, I, you know, from AWS I went to VMware, worked on storage for cloud native applications, and then from there went to Docker and ran the enterprise platform. So let's start with just generically being a product manager at a startup. I think one of the big differences is in a big company, you have you have infrastructure behind you, you have distribution. Like you already might have name recognition for your product. You, all, you may have people already understand what you do. And often you're iterating directly with users to go to, and refine what you already have. Uh, in a startup, you really don't often have that structure or that structure continues to break as you add more people. So you just have to be more fluid and reactive. You have to be able to constantly pick up the pieces and you, you have to be used to being kind of the only person that people can depend on. Uh, the only person who, when when things are going wrong, that you have to, you, you have to sort of take the call and run with it, otherwise no one else will. So that creates a responsibility very quickly. It makes you grow up really quickly. So that's some of the things to be aware of in, in, a, you know, in a startup. In Docker in general, I think my biggest takeaway was on just the power of bottoms-up adoption. Docker had an incredible community, very passionate users, and, and sort of the strong uptick in the developer community. 
And what I learned is how you, how you go about creating that. Really, to create bottoms-up adoption, you have to create these hooks. You have to really figure out a burning pain point that users really care about and want solved now. And for Docker, it was really application component dependency versioning was the was the singular bottoms-up use case that developers cared about. And it blossomed to so many other things like microservices and, and Kubernetes and cloud-native applications and whatnot. But really, it was that key burning pain point that drew people in and created this bottoms-up adoption and, and Docker's used everywhere. It was, um, and it was an interesting experience. It was kind of unique because of the basis of, of the company being around open source. Docker had a kind of what's called open core model in which the open source software was available to everybody, but then additional enterprise products made it better, more usable. Question about what you thought, maybe some lessons you took away from building an open source product, since I know Vectorized also has some open source um, characteristics to it as well. Yeah. Number one was that you really have to be very thoughtful and have a plan upfront of what the divide between community and commercial or free versus paid is going to be even before you might have a paid product. So a lot of people build either an open source project or, or they have a, a free edition or community edition first, build adoption, and then go build a paid service. But you need to be thinking up front, where are you going to draw the line between what free versus paid features are going to be? Because once you've built adoption with a free product, you can't take that away, particularly in open source where you literally can't take it away because, of, because it's open source code. You need to be very thoughtful of that difference and then what users will care about and then what buyers will care about. And technically, you can give everything away for free and people will use it. So you need to have some judicious guidance around that up front. Can I ask you, Vivek, how do you navigate that practically? Like, where do you draw that line? Because I feel like a big part of a startup doing something new is you're kind of figuring out what is attractive. You know, you're trying to find product market fit. Where do we actually draw that line? What's the sort of point where you go from you know, free to uh, now you have to start paying. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple of key principles, of course, that are focused from my sort of developer-driven, bottoms-up driven, open source-driven experience. One is just have a very clear understanding of the differences between your user and your buyer and what they really care about. You know, your user might be focused on, in developer land, for example, solving a very key problem with, with building an integration or workflow with their application. Whereas your buyer might be somebody in, IT, it might be somebody in engineering leadership, it might be somebody in security. What do they care about at scale? And, and how is that different from what an individual user can care about? Typically, I divide enterprise value into three areas, what I call peace of mind, collaboration, and then enterprise-specific performance. So peace of mind are things like, what, what helps an ops team sleep at night? Security, scalability, uh, disaster recovery, fault tolerance. A really good example of that, if you ever, if you know the company HashiCorp, they filed recently for their S1, their product Vault, which is very successful in secrets management. They have a paid feature around read-only replicas, so uh, allowing you to read data in different availability zones. And this is something an enterprise cares a lot about from a peace of mind standpoint that a individual developer may not necessarily care about. So peace of mind is key. The second is collaboration. So if the open source or the free version helps a single person really see value on a key workflow, how do you get a team or, and then an org and then the larger company to really see collaborative value? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a gamer, so I call this going from single player to multiplayer mode. That's a great analogy. And, and it makes a lot of sense. We see this in products all over the place, right? If, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Slack or Docs or something like that, you know, I individual usage makes a lot of sense as a, as a freely available plan, but then an enterprise will actually pay for the ability to use that at scale in teams. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so that's how I think about collaboration is when you get teams of folks using something, that, that, that sort of changes the game. I've mentioned enterprise-specific performance last. Performance is, is a controversial topic because you, know, you don't want to limit the performance per se of a product. That will, particularly in open source, that'll, that'll make users upset. But can you add performance enhancements that enterprises care more about? Another good example could be if you look at Slack. You know, the number one feature people pay for in Slack is the ability to search your old history. And that's a usage-based gate in many ways. It's once you get to a certain scale, like you can't operate without looking at your old search history. So are there ways to limit performance in a way that aligns with the value of the organization? This is also about pricing too. If you're a SaaS-based platform, do you, how do you set up a free tier that's generous enough for an individual? but then grow the usage more effectively and then start paying at a certain level where a team or, or is, is, is using it from a performance standpoint. We're going to start uh, charging teams to listen to the podcast, but you can listen to it individually. Sounds, sounds like it'll work great. So you've mentioned performance. Um, I, I guess there's maybe a more generalized, just enterprise qualities of the product that you might care about that maybe you might be able to monetize. So things like how many people can it support at one time? Things like maybe reliability or availability. You know, you can self-host the thing for free yourself, but good luck getting availability to, you know, four, five, nines. It doesn't really make sense for you to figure out on your own. Yeah. And this is where a lot of platforms, particularly in open source, offer a cloud-based platform that's fully managed and operated at scale. And allows you to scale from zero to you know infinity. That's a definitely a powerful performance metric in a, in a different way. Uh, what are some of the other things that really come to mind when you think about like how you might do things differently in the future, or things that you did particularly well? Um, any other learnings? Yeah, I think the biggest one is focus. So there's an old saying. I think it's a, it's attributed to uh, one of the Hewlett Packard founders that startups die of indigestion, not starvation. They try to do too many things and they never do one thing particularly well. And then the company fails as a result. You know, I think one of the things uh, as I look at what we were doing at Docker, we were just building too many products. We were trying to build a developer desktop product. We were trying to build a cloud, uh, a SaaS cloud product. We're trying to build a strong enterprise uh, orchestration product, uh, an app store, and a, a number of other products next to that. And each of those products, there were a number of competitors in, in each of those. So when you're a startup, there's only so many things you can do. And so you really need to focus your resources where they're effective. You can build a bunch of different features, or you can choose to drive one feature that really creates value and do it really well. As an aside, I think there's a little bit of misalignment in the PM world, where as a junior PM, you really want to ship a lot of things because you get a name for yourself by shipping features. But then as you progress in your career, you realize the most important thing is what you choose not to do. And how can you stop doing things you can be effective at the ones that you should be doing? So a little bit of a misalignment. I'm not sure we've, we've solved that as an industry. I think there's also a misalignment around getting to MVP and then moving on to the next thing. Right. Oftentimes you'll find very obvious things that like you don't really prioritize the first time around. Things like, oh, if this operation fails in my product, can I just retry it? Pretty obvious once you encounter that failure. But like at first glance, you don't really think about that. You get the feature out, you move on to the next thing, and suddenly you're prioritizing between putting some additional polish on an existing thing versus capturing some new opportunity. That's really, really good point. And I think it's important in how you incentivize your PMs. Do you incentivize them by creating new features and working on new things? Or do you incentivize them either directly through the users or revenue they generate or by owning workflows, which encompass sets of features or, set, or, or sets of personas 
And those need to build upon each other in order to be successful. I, I like that idea. So when you say owning workflows, like how would you implement that? Or what, what would be an example of a workflow that, that a PM could own? Yeah. I, and this is one of my key things for running a PM team is that you don't, PM shouldn't own pieces of the stack. They should own workflows that a customer does. So for example, they could own like developer onboarding and growth within the platform. And that's a great example. Onboarding and onboarding, getting started, building up, and then converting to paid. That's something. That's a cycle that never ends, uh, particularly in a bottoms-up or a product-led growth company. And so having somebody build across that, and then it's not about how many new features you create. It's about really refining that process. And then your metrics are very clear. How many people are you onboarding? What does the conversion rate and drop-offs look like? What do daily active users, weekly active users, monthly active users look like? So pick a workflow. Give Give a workflow to your PM and have them own the success of that workflow rather than you own this feature. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, so focus, drawing the right boundaries of ownership also is a big key to being successful as a PM. Anything else that comes to mind? Yeah. The last one, you know, the last thing, and this is back to the Docker takeaways, is just really around go-to-market and understanding go-to-market and how it drives product. I think for us, we had this incredibly strong bottoms-up community pipeline and the disconnect was that the, the enterprise product was sold with more of a top-down motion. And this is because it was, in many ways, a different product. The, the product developers used was a team in running on, their, you know, running on someone's desktop or laptop most of the time, whereas the enterprise product was a server-grade orchestration product sold to IT. So you had this disconnect between the bottoms-up community pipeline and the sales motion that you're using. Um, and so you need to think really carefully about what is the go-to-market motion that drives your product? How does that drive how you build the product and not the other way around? So after Docker, you left the world of product management and you entered the world of venture capital, which, which I thought was a really interesting move. You started working for the Mayfield Fund. How exactly did that come about? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned that the, the thing that I like most about PM is that ultimately PM done right is helping other people build things. Um, that's, that's the most fulfilling and satisfying part about PM. Um, and for me, the opportunity in VC represented helping to build companies rather than helping to build just teams. I had gotten to know some VCs first during my time at VMware running the cloud, cloud native storage applications group there. Um, it was a relatively new area. Uh, some VCs just came asking about what you know, what was going on within that industry. And so I helped with due diligence really and in, in relationship building. And then well, I went over to Docker and then in running the enterprise platform, more VCs came and asked, can you help us understand the cloud native world and and the various pieces of the container ecosystem and cloud native ecosystem. And so the relationship kind of just got built over time. It was it just happened. It was it wasn't very intentional. Towards the end of my time at Docker, I started that those conversations shifted from due diligence to are you interested in investing? Um, I got to know the folks at Mayfield and was just thoroughly impressed by you know how much they worked closely with companies and helping them build from the ground up. Um, and you know most folks at Mayfield are former operators and or founders themselves. Um, and that really helped that mentality. And so the ability to think and work with companies strategically uh, at, at, at the at the board level was just a it was a great proposition. And so you know I, I made the jump and spent three years there investing in companies, getting to work closely with pretty successful companies out there, uh, uh, and and learn from some of the best companies like HashiCorp, Rancher, Influx, and and others. You know, and then also you know help advise companies on product and go to market strategy as well. So three years, you must have seen a lot of companies, a lot of pitches. Like how many pitches do you think you've sat through in that time? Oh, geez. Multiple a day, um, you know, over five days a week. Let's just say hundreds. Got it. 
very tactically, I, I've never tried to do this before, but if I had a startup, like how would I even go about trying to get investment? What's the best way for me to get in front of a VC? There's a number of different ways. You know, one is send a cold email to, to VCs and some VCs like it more than others. When you do a cold email, it really helps to get right to the point about what you're building, you know, uh, what the idea is, what the potential is and, and uh, how this can grow, why you're the right team to build it. Basically, just be very upfront about where you think the opportunity is. Um, honestly, though, the, the reality is I think the, the best way is to have to get a, a, an intro or a warm intro from folks or get connected. It's, it's changing how it is, but it still is the best way uh, to, to sort of to, to get in front of a VC. Just network, just reach out to VCs and talk to them and get to know them. Um, VCs are people too, and they're usually pretty social people. Working in venture capital, were there product strategy red flags that you started to pick up on in a different way um, from looking at these companies as an investor rather than an operator? Yeah. I mean, I think from a specifically from a product standpoint, it comes down to you have a laser sharp understanding of who your user and buyer are. And again, this is more enterprise focused. I wasn't as much of a consumer investor. I'm not going to find the next TikTok. But from an enterprise standpoint, do you, do you have a really sharp understanding of who, who your user is, what they care about, what their workflows are, where their pain points are? And similarly, where the buyers are, are they different from a user? What do their budgets look like? What do their needs look like? And that allows you to, to understand, is there, is there a need? I think if, they, if you don't see that, if someone just says, you know, this product will sell itself because it's so awesome, that to me is a bit of a red flag. Like if they're if they're leading with tech, if they're leading with hey, here's why this is interesting, rather than you know here's something that people is an issue, and here are the people who have budget who care about solving that problem for them. Yeah, you know, I I, I had a I wrote an article uh, or blog post uh, on my website about the four T's um, of the things that I care about when I'm looking at investment, and the first one is team, and the, literally the strength of the team, the superpowers that they bring, the insights they bring, their team dynamics. Why are they the right people for this? The second one I called TAM, but it would total applicable market. But really, that's about potential. How does this become really big? Why is there an opportunity here? And then tech actually comes third. It's it's less important than why is there an opportunity? Why is it important? Why should we go after this? And why are we the right people? Then you check on the tech and the product and why is this differentiated and why is this the right approach? And then last is traction, is you know, how much progress have you made? And of course, the more you go towards later rounds from seed all the way to you know series D, E, F, or whatever attraction becomes more important. But earlier on, that's actually the least important thing. The most important thing, are you the right people? And is there really an opportunity to be had here? We'll put a link to your blog in the podcast description also. So listeners can check out your product articles like the one on the four T's. I want to get into uh, some of your thoughts on, you know, what are the keys to successfully growing a product? How do you see companies really set themselves up successfully for growth? I, I really, truly, deeply believe that go-to-market drives product, not the other way around. You need to understand how your product is going to be distributed to users and buyers, whether it's sold or not. How, how's it, and then how is it going to be sold? What's the value proposition? That drives the way that you build it. Doing it the other way around, if you build it first and then trigger, figure out how to try to sell it or get it adopted, that's a big stumbling point for a lot of folks. And that's where you don't really get the growth that you're looking for. So understanding your go-to-market strategy and your adoption strategy first is the most important thing. To me, there's kind of three major adoption models. There is the traditional top-down adoption where insertion is done at the executive level and then usage is pushed down onto managers and doers. This is the traditional way enterprises are sold. Go sell at the CIO, VP level, 
and then they kind of you know enforce its usage by folks below in the, in the hierarchy. And upsell is still done at the executive level. And these are usually uh, account executives, often six-figure deals or higher long sales cycles. You know, when you're building this, you're really focusing on C-suite value propositions, which is really more about long-term vision and driving the bottom line with cost reduction or things like that. And then you're building really a plot, like a full-on platform with all the bells and whistles, whether or not people will use them, because that's what will sell. Got it. So this is really like a sales first type of motion. You have your sales team go in, find the right people to influence and get the company to buy it because like you've got the features, you've got the salespeople, you can get to the right people at the right time. That's correct. People are really buying in on a vision at that point. You build adoption in the land and expand model, um, starting with a small number of highly referenceable customers and you build out from there. That's a very top-down model of growth. The polar opposite of that is bottoms-up adoption, which is where insertion is done by broadly what I'll call doers. They're people who actually do stuff, whether they're developers, but it doesn't have to be developers. It could be business analysts. It could be uh, DevOps folks, uh, it could be data scientists, anybody who's actually doing something and it makes, makes the implementation decisions. And then upsell is done up the chain. Rarely are the doers the ones who buy the product. Very occasionally they are, but more often it's managers. Like if let's say your developers are, are, your, are your users, then maybe it's engineering managers who make the sale or architects, or it goes up eventually to VPN or, or you know, CTO level. What you're, what you're mentioning sounds very much like a sales strategy, right? It could be who you contact within a company, your customer. How do these findings or the, these strategies find their way into the actual product strategy and roadmap and how they influence how the product is built? Yeah, good question. Well, bottoms up adoption is heavily driven by product or it can be heavily driven by product. Often people say bottoms of adoption and, and product-led growth synonymously. Um, product-led growth just means that the growth model relies on the product itself as sort of the primary driver of customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Bottoms-up adoption is usually driven by product-led growth. It's where you get folks using the product. Now, that may require some marketing. It may require some sort of viral interaction with the community. It might require folks to start using it and then referring uh, usage. But it's the use of the product itself and sort of how great it is and the tools you built it in that draws more and more people into the product. That's how you create adoption. So often bottoms up adoption is not driven by sales. It is driven by adoption of the, like judicious combinations of marketing and sort of product-led growth. And then sales may do the upsell at the manager and exec level. And even then, product is strongly involved. So the product is involved both in the growth aspect. You need to build the product to be frictionless and easy to use. You need to build it to solve a very key pain point uh, for bottoms of adoption. But then you've got to figure out the upsell. What features make people care about upsells? Where do you draw that dividing line between free versus paid? What makes a buyer care? And ideally, how do you actually make them come inbound to buy to you from a product standpoint, rather than require sort of sales to reach out to get that conversation started? What you're saying is these things are not mutually exclusive by any means. Uh, you figure out what kind of your wedge is, how you get your foot in the door, and then you actually gave some really good examples earlier of product-led growth. You know how the product is built actually can drive and contribute to growth, like collaboration features, um, maybe you know notifications and reminders that are built into the product. All of the types of things that get people coming back, re-engage, acquire new people for you, and that's a really strong growth model through the product. Yeah, and you know what? Even to to confuse things further, you can use product strategies as a part of top-down growth as well. So, you know, if you're if you know your sales team is going to be presenting to executives, how can you build trial or demo usage that makes it really easy for execs to see the value in a product very quickly? 
and accelerate the sales cycle. And it's not bottoms up adoption. This is done at, at, a, at a higher level within the company, but your product can facilitate that process. So you'd start thinking about trials. You start thinking about dashboards um, that quickly show hero metrics within the product. That can really help drive top-down adoption too. So I think product is key to all of these processes. You just have to be conscious of how it's being adopted and how it's being sold, the difference between those two, and where you can build product muscle to help support that process. I can tell you, I've worked on some complicated products that were super powerful, solved real problems, had technology that nobody else in the world really could offer to customers, but getting it set up for a demo, a nightmare. And the types of people that you had to influence were the people who would want to see a demo. And it's funny how products, especially products that have been out there for a long time, that lend themselves really well towards what executives and leaders may really need and want, um, but may have lost their way in terms of what the actual users of the product want. Uh, And so that might lend itself really well for enterprise adoption when you already have a following, but you can lose focus on on the product-led growth side of things. Yeah, you know, one of my mentors from Docker, and and you know know him as well, Mark, this is Benjoth Chanana, always said like, you know, you need to always be meeting customers. It doesn't matter whether you're bottoms up or top down. As a product person, it's easy to get caught up in the other the other aspects of the job and, you know, working closely with, with engineering teams, working closely with, with other teams, analyzing data. But you really need to be constantly meeting or spending time with customers and users so you really understand and have empathy for what their pain points are. And it, it can be very easy to lose sight of that even as you get closer to, you know, you get more caught up within the product, it gets more mature or you're in a bigger company. But that's the single biggest value add that product people bring is that empathy towards towards the user and, and, and towards buyers for what it's worth, uh, toward, towards all the, towards both groups of folks. Yeah, for sure. And so you have taken this really interesting arc in your career where you went from, wow, product is great. I wish I had known about this earlier to really getting into it to let me see if I can scale my ability to help other companies as a VC. Now you're back uh, as VP of product at Vectorize. What what brought you back to the world of products, uh, really getting a little bit deeper and rolling your sleeves up? I, I think, honestly, it just came down to doing what you really love and what you're most passionate about. So I was lucky to be a part of a venture firm that spent quite a bit of time uh, working closely with companies. But ultimately, venture is about investing in companies and, and sort of helping uh, find good companies, invest in them, help them get fundraised. And that's that's the primary job in venture. Um, and you know you work you work at a strategic level, but you're not sort of getting into the the day to day details and, and and helping people get things built. And ultimately, may, maybe it's just a former engineer in me that I just like helping people build things. And it it I took some personal reflection and wrestling. Um, we we recently had a baby daughter, uh, and so I, I took a little bit of time off. Uh, it's a lot of lot of uh, diaper changing, late nights, bottle feeds, etc. You started off, you know, building products and got into the VC world, got to see that side of the table, uh, take a lot of lessons from it, and then get back to building products now as as the head of product for Vectorized. I was wondering if you could maybe part us with some things that you've learned, resources that you've picked up, or anything that's really impacted you um, and your product journey. Yeah. In terms of pieces of advice first, I, I think my biggest thing is if you really want to level up in product really deeply understand go-to-market. So go spend some time working with sales and marketing teams. Understand how your organization delivers products end-to-end. Um, I was lucky enough to get to do this at a number of product organizations. And then at InVenture and at the board level, really see closely how all these pieces fit together at a, at a strategic view. I think there's a tendency sometimes in product that 
similar to if all you have a ham is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. If all you have is product, every problem looks like a feature. And that's not necessarily the case. Like you really, really need to understand the distribution side, really understand. So, so spend time with sales and marketing. In terms of uh, you know, a resource out there, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Lenny Rachitsky's newsletter on product. It's, I think you can find it at LennyRachitsky.com. Lenny was a, a uh, um, he, he was a startup founder uh, who I believe got acquired at by Airbnb. Spent time there, um, and now he's he's both an advisor and he and he does this newsletter full time. And it's what's interesting is that it really really cuts at the intersection between product and go to market. So what are adoption models that have worked for companies? What are models of virality that have worked for companies? Uh, as examples. And it allows you to sort of learn new models, which is an advantage you do get to see adventure um, uh, across many different companies, uh, but also just to think about how they they really affect your your sort of distribution process. You know, that's a resource that I'm I'm a big fan of. Yeah, I, I signed up too, and I can tell you, even in the couple of weeks since we first spoke, uh, gotten some real gems. Actually, some stuff very in line with what you mentioned around product led growth, things that you can really take some real insight away from. I want to thank you for coming on the show because you have a great amount of experience. You're also, what I like is the the career arc clearly shows a lot of uh, self-reflection and understanding what drives you and ability to go and explore things. And I feel like those are always super commendable qualities and helpful for just developing your career. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Vivek. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Stewart, thank you so much both for having me. Really appreciate it. That's our show. Thanks for listening.